This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Welcome to our uh, evening Bible study at Christchurch, Jerusalem. A little something different this evening as we are on the cusp of the Feast of Purim. Uh, today we are going to have um, Dr. Sharon Alley, uh, who's going to give us a lecture on the good, the bad, and the ugly. But to introduce her to our community. All right, guys, it is my pleasure to introduce um, Dr. It is Dr. Sharon Alley, is it not, Sharon? You're not a doctor yet? Not yet? No, not yet. But you are working on your PhD. You've been working on it for like 30, 40 million years now. Um, Theoretically, but not officially. Yeah, it's a a thing that we do here in Israel is we begin research and then we just never, never stop. It took me three and a half years to finish a two-year degree in a master's program because that's what it's like here. Okay, Sharon Alley uh, uh, is the uh, daughter of Randall Booth, who who taught me Greek, okay, which I have to say was probably the worst three months of my life. However, Sharon uh, is uh, very erudite and you're going to enjoy, I think, her, her take on this is very well researched, very good scholar, knows a, uh, much of the ancient languages, has lived in Israel most of your life. Is that true? Apart from a few stints in Sudan? Um, from age 17. Age 17, mother of two children. Yes, did I get that right? Before that, Sudan and Kenya. Mm-hmm. Kenya, okay. And, uh, and, and, uh, and is, is, I think, still in, in some form doing a PhD work at Hebrew University um, with Yair Zakovich. Is that true? Well, he's now retired. Oh, for crying out loud. They're all leaving those That's guys. That's what right I am now. officially doing. I can give you an official title. I'm yes, a, go on. I'm a Hebrew department chair for the Institute of Biblical Languages and translation fantastic because i think yes uh, the home for the uh, you know, school of bible translators and biblical languages is a big deal here in the in uh, in israel um as i hope that you you might even get a little taste of it as we go through this uh, megillah so um you've given this uh, lecture to our community or talk a few times and each time you do i always discover something new you must do extra research during the during the year um and and you, you come up with with something um so i will reserve my comments towards the end okay uh and and we'll see how we go so brothers and sisters please uh enjoy this next lecture as we are going to celebrate purim tomorrow but before we do let's hear what it is about the good the bad and the ugly well it's a privilege to share with all of you guys i know some of your faces out there um most of you are new to me so Um, I'm happy to be here talking, and I hope that we will have a really good um, interaction as we go along. I'm going to go ahead and share a screen with you so that it keeps me on track. And also, just so that you can see some of the text we're going to be looking at. Okay. So, yeah, so because the title, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly... Um, I thought it would be good to just say where that's coming from. I don't know if many of you have seen the 1965 classic. Yep. Yep. 
Okay, good. Um, what I have to say isn't actually very connected to that, except it is a good movie. And it is uh, very, I mean, there's a lot of subtleties and ironies going on. And I think that that is our connection. Um, and it leaves you guessing. This is to jog your memory for those who saw it. That's the ugly guy. <laughs> I'll pause it there. So it's a movie made kind of in the same type of humor, you could say, as I think is true of our scroll. Um, so Esther, it's a celebration of good over evil. And in Esther, at least, not in the movie, in Esther, we know who the good guys are. They're Esther and Mordecai. And it doesn't take long before you figure out the bad guys, Haman or Haman. Um, and if you go to the synagogue, you'll hear this every time Mordechai, you read through the scroll of Esther, every time Mordechai is mentioned, everyone cheers. And when Haman is mentioned, everyone boos and they have this noisemaker and all of that. Um, so you definitely get this feeling of the good and the bad very clearly. And um, there's an even more evil that's lurking behind the scenes. And so I'm going to call that, it's so evil, it's ugly. Um, however, my husband pointed out today that if you were going to make a direct comparison, the ugly in the movie is actually, um, well, you could say he's an opportunist. Mm. And the good isn't so good. And, and well, the bad is bad. That's a good one thing that stays true. So you can decide, you can go back and see the movie and decide which of our characters, Haman, Mordechai, and Amalek fit the different people. Or maybe put out Amalek and have the king, the king of the scroll. But I want to I think about this ugly evil tonight. But first, I want to give you some background and a little laugh. So this is a summary of the Jewish feasts, all of them. They tried to kill us. They didn't succeed. Let's eat. Um, that in itself kind of shows the... Uh, the I won't say ethos, the atmosphere of the scroll of Esther. And so it makes you ask a question, how can such a serious topic like genocide and its reversal be celebrated by carnival and this silliness? You know, is, is this being flippant? Are we being sacrilegious? How did this tradition even develop? Or... If it's not sacrilege, is it a product of a close reading of the text itself? And that's what I'm claiming, that when you appreciate the irony, then it all starts to make sense. So the other connected question is, where is God in the book? Since I guess most of you will know, if you read through the book of Esther, there is no mention of God's name. There is no prayer. There is fasting, but that's the only act that you could call maybe pious or religious. And so in order to understand God, you have to read between the lines. And um, that's to be expected because 
Good literature always makes you read between the lines, just like good movies make you interpret the scene. In fact, back to our Good, the Bad and the Ugly movie, the first five minutes or so, barely any dialogue is there and you're just trying to figure out and make sense of events. And so that's really a marker of good literature. And since the Bible is the best literature, um, how much more would that be true of the Bible? So, so be thinking of this um, irony and between the lines. So I wanna talk about irony because I think it's a big feature of the book and I'm gonna try to explain it by way of a joke. So I've written it out for you too. At a linguistics conference, there was a presentation on all the ways for making a negative in languages. You can have a single negative, meaning no. You can have a positive, that means negative. And quite commonly, a language may have a double negative, which stays negative. Like in French, we have ne pas. In Hebrew, we have af pa'am lo. In English, we even have I ain't got nothing, which is not standard, but it does exist. So, the speaker then proceeded, oop, lost my joke track. The speaker then proceeds to say, but there isn't any language where a double positive makes a negative. From the back of the room, a voice says, yeah, right. Huh. So, I don't have a screen. Received a thing called irony when what you say or do is exactly opposite from what is intended. In this context, the yeah, right means you're wrong, not yes, correct. Furthermore, you're proving the answer with the very thing deemed impossible. So it's an exact flip. So a, a more straightforward definition, not a joke. Irony is a rhetorical device or a literary technique or an event in which what appears on the surface to be the case differs radically from what actually is the case. And that's uh, Wikipedia's definition, last I checked. Um, and another irony we're gonna specifically look at tonight as well, uh, I would call burlesque. And so it's a subset, it is irony, it's a particular type. And so this would be a literary or dramatic work that seeks to ridicule by means of grotesque exaggeration or comic imitation, like a parody or a caricature. And this we see all over Esther. So there's two types. You can either deal with something petty or insignificant in a very serious and formal manner, or you can deal with something very serious in a flippant or casual manner. And, uh, you actually see examples of both of these in Esther. Um, but I'd say especially the second. The whole theme of the book, as I said, is very serious. And yet it's being dealt with um, what looks like casually and flippantly and haphazardly. So this kind of irony, burlesque, seeks to entertain and correct the wrong in society through its entertainment. Burlesque often makes use of exaggeration to point to the ridiculous in any given situation. As I said, this style permeates the scroll of Esther. And it, what, it, what, it is what makes us ask, how can such a serious topic um, be dealt with so frivolously? 
a lot of commentators, when they look at the book of Esther, they either want to ignore what seems ridiculous so they can have their serious story back, or they insist that it's all a silly carnival and only secondarily connected to a serious underlying message. So they want to make it an either or. But I'm saying that completely misses the beauty of literature and the beauty of irony. It can be both silly and serious. So why use irony? Um, it, according to Good, this guy who wrote a book on irony in the Bible, oops, sorry. It exposes falsehood and stupidity. It recognizes foolishness and pretense. It mocks those who think they are something when they are actually nothing. And I emphasize that because I think that is probably the main thing you see in Esther because the takeaway is between the lines. The takeaway is that God is in control. And that's the beauty of it. They haven't even mentioned his name the whole time. So how does this scroll open? If you remember, unfortunately, we don't have time tonight to read through the whole text together. Because I think if we did, we could just simply stop at every instance and talk about the different ironies and what you see there. But if you think back how this story opens, um, you remember there's this exaggerated party for all of Persia and it lasts 180 days long. And I think um, that's quite an exaggeration. If you're going to throw a party for 180 days, that's serious. Um, also, there's constant drinking going on and the decorations are very lavish. You have silver and gold and all these fine dyed materials which are ironically the same materials used in the temple. And you can see some of those ironic reversals at the end. Um, but then the king, you know, he has his drinking party and the queen has her drinking party. And that's actually true to Persia. Um, he, he invites the queen into his party and then she says no. And he makes this personal tiff between him and his wife, who of course is a queen, into this national and international scandal. And like now we have to worry about every man and every woman for all times. So if you're sensing some of that exaggerated buildup, I think you're sensing correctly. And this is even more pronounced if you think about the culture in Persia, people did have separate they had women drinking parties separate from men drinking parties. And the only women that came into the men's drinking parties were not reputable. They were consorts. Um, you know, we have all kinds of words for what they were, but it's nothing that the queen would want to be identified with. So of course she's gonna say no, you know, that's just scandalous to be requested to come in. And so, and yet they're taking this refusal and just blowing it out of her portion and oh, she says no, everyone everywhere is gonna say no. So I, here I'm bringing you um, from Esther one verses 16 to 18. Just look at all the alls, all the alls in red or kol, if you read the Hebrew on the top. I'll read it in English. Memuchan then replied to the king and the officials, the wrong of Queen Vashti is not against the king alone but against all the officials and all the people who are throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the matter concerning the queen will spread to all the women, 
leading them to treat their husbands with contempt, saying, when King Ahasuerus gave orders to bring Queen Vashti into his presence, she would not come. And this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media who have heard the matter concerning the queen will respond in the same way to all the royal officials, and there will be more than enough contempt and anger. Okay, so this just completely blown out of proportion um, imagined situation. So who is this, uh, oops, who is the King Ahasuerus? Or um, I guess some of your Bibles may have other names for him. In Hebrew, it's Ahasuerus. You may have Xerxes or Artaxerxes, however people wanted to fit it into the Greek um, historically or based on the Greek translation. But Ahasuerus, what does this king really care about? And um, if you could sum it up, I've given three words, wealth, wine, and women, not in that order. Uh, maybe wine, women, and wealth. <laughs> you can debate it. But basically everything important, he sidelines. And then everything that should be on the side, he makes his only preoccupation. So right there you have burlesque, you have deep irony. And of course, the stated goal in the first chapter is to enforce the word of the king, you know, because if, if Vashti said no to the king, everyone everywhere is just going to be complete mayhem. Um, but throughout the story, the king is the one who follows everyone else's word. And literally says that in the very paragraph that he's saying, what should be done to Vashti? Um, Memuchan gives all this advice. And then the king does according to Memuchan's word, just like beautiful, ironic play on that, where, you know, instead of upholding, instead of taking the initiative and having his own word, he's basically following someone else. And we see that throughout, throughout the um, Megillah, the scroll, um, when Haman comes to make his request of the king to basically exterminate the Jews. Uh, the king stamps his approval. And he, he starts off, you know, if it pleases the king. And then when Esther makes her request, the exact opposite request, if it pleases the king, he stamps that too. And it's like he has no clue what's really going on. And it comes across that he doesn't even care because how could he stamp his approval to opposite um, requests? So he is, that's why I have this one picture here. He is a bit of a, a puppet in that regard or a child. He's very, he can be pulled any direction. There are also little hints, if you want to go back and think about it, to Ahav, Ahab, King Ahab, who is also a king within Israel, if you remember, nor the Northern Kingdom, that is portrayed as very childish. And his wife is the one who gets the job done, although in her case, she's evil. And... Uh, and he's pouting all the time. Okay, so that's that's our character that's funny. Um, Mordechai and Esther's, I want to look at their heredity. They're also from dignified lineage. If you remember in Esther 2.5, I'll read it. Now, there happened to be a Jewish man in Susa, or in Hebrew, we'd say Shushan, the citadel, whose name was Mordechai. He was a son of Yair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Okay, everyone out there, who is also a son of um, Kish, who is a Benjamite? 
Shaul. Shaul, right? Oh. Saul. King Saul. Yeah. So we know King Saul on the one hand. Now let's take a look at Haman's heredity, which is very key. We get his introduction in chapter 3.1. And he is called, I'll read it. Sometime later, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamedata, the Agagite, Agagi, exalting him and setting his position above that of all the officials who were with him. Now, I, I just put in parentheses, if you read the Greek, it doesn't actually say Agagi. They take it another direction, and I'm not quite sure why. Uh, Bureos. But um, I think that would be harder than for, for the Greeks, if they were only reading the Greek text, to follow the connections. Mm -hmm. It's still possible, as you'll see. So mm -hmm. he's Agagi. So basically, we're having a rematch in the scroll of Esther, where you have King Saul on the one hand and King Agag on the other hand. And if you remember, this battle happens in 1 Samuel 15. He never wiped him out. <laughs> That's right. Um, and he was given specific instructions that he didn't follow, if you remember as well. But there's this replaying of this battle in a later generation. So Mordechai and Esther from Saul's side against Haman from Agag's side. And this rematch is itself a rematch. Go back. Okay, wait, I have one more thing on Haman's heredity. Um, Agag is the king of Amalek, right? It says that in 1 Samuel 15, 8. And so you have to think not only Agag, but who is he representing? And so that goes back to the, when Amalek first attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt. And you find that story in story form. You find it in Exodus 17, 8 through 16. And in law form, you find in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. So maybe you looked at that when you're going through the book of Deuteronomy. I don't know if you've gotten there yet. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And so you see, if you read those two texts, you see how Deuteronomy is interpreting Exodus. And um, not only that story itself, but that story in its context, because the story before is water from the rock. And the last question they say, is God really with us or not? And then comes Amalek. And um, so it's kind of like a lack of faith brought Amalek. And then God proved that he was really there. Um, but this attack from Amalek, as seen through Deuteronomy as well, there is, no, there is no incentive ever stated in the Bible. There's no reason. They aren't defending territory. They don't need to, I don't know what, there's no water source or land source. They're just attacking. And then according to Deuteronomy, they're attacking, attacking the stragglers. So presumably the older, the sick, the women, children. And so it just comes across as attacking for no reason and just pure evil. And that is how... Uh, Amalek became interpreted to be more of a spiritual heredity than a physical people group because there's no other physical people group in the Hebrew Bible that is so unredeemed. Um, for the Moabites, we have the book of Ruth. For Edomites, you have, you know, don't hate an Edomite because he's your brother. Um, for, you know, any of them you find, you can usually find a character that's somehow redeeming or somehow at least gray, not completely black. 
but Amalek is completely black. And um, and really, it's it's interpreted as this, the first, I guess, anti-Semite, or if you want to talk about it more broadly, um, the first person trying to commit genocide, you know, wiping out a people group for no reason. And so the punishment they receive at the end of that initial battle fits the crime where their sentence is that their memory or their name will be wiped out from under the heavens. And we are going to read the story in a little bit. So yeah, so you have this rematch, Israel against Amalek. Later on, it's Saul, Israel's first king against Agag, the king of Amalek. And then much later, Mordechai and Esther against Haman. And even though Haman is in a distant country in Persia, somehow he is an Agagite. And so the, then the question comes, you know, is this a physical heredity description or is this more in the spirit of, of Amalek, which would make him the Agagite? So I want to read a little bit of this original battle. I know you probably all know it. So one with Moses lifting his hands or his hand or his rod or all three. And uh, it's a great story. There's many questions there. And it's also full of irony. So Amalek came and attacked Israel in Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua fought against Amalek, just as Moses had instructed him. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses would raise his hands, then Israel prevailed. But whenever he would rest his hands, then Amalek prevailed. Okay, so here, I don't know if you caught that. Whenever he would raise his hand, that means it was not one time. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm so tired, but... Oh, I kept them up. It's implying, says whenever he would rest his hands, Amalek prevailed. So there's a up and a down, and an up and a down, and an up and a down. And you get the picture. When the hands of Moses became heavy, they took a stone and put it under him. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other. And so his hands were steady until the sun went down. And if you uh, look in the Hebrew there, if any of you guys uh, like to look at Hebrew, you see the word I'm circling? Yep. Emuna. So in other contexts, this, this is your word for faith or faithfulness. And here his, it's, it has that physical sense of steadiness, right? They're physically faithful. Um, but it's a beautiful play because in the story before, the people had no faith that God was with them. And here Moses is, you know, standing in faith, you could say. Sorry, how do I get out of, there we go. Now, I already mentioned this. We have a clear up-down motif. Um, kids, you know, they play with light switches, off, on, off, on. And it's also, it's, it's a way that God can use to, to prove that he's there because they need something to see. They need a science experiment to really know, is God really with us? And so here you go. When Moses has his hands up, he's there. When his hands are down, he's not. 
not in the sense he's not helping up down so it's it's something that you can really see his presence and something else that's important i think for our story in esther is that either amalek is winning or israel's winning they can't both win it's like a teeter-totter for one to be up the other one's got to be down it's like this and so the whole thing seems uh, rather a lot burlesque Okay, so we get to the end of this story. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and rehearse it in Joshua's hearing. For I will surely wipe out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. For he said, for a hand was lifted up to the throne of the Lord, that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, what did he really say? <laughs> The, the last little phrase there is very hard to understand when you're reading in Hebrew because it's, it's lacking some words. A hand on the throne. It literally says, a hand on throne of Yah. God has a war with Amalek from generation to generation. So... That's either from generation to generation or since time immemorial. So there are many different ways to understand this line. And everyone who reads it has to interpret it. And so uh, we're going to look at some of those interpretations because I think we see them in the Bible already. And interestingly, we see several in the Bible, several interpretations. And so like good poetry, I think that uh, the same line can mean several things at once. And so, you know, if you, if you come at it from rabbinics, the Torah has 70 faces, right? So if you're looking at a diamond, there can be several facets at the same time. But what we're trying to understand is what is this hand? Who is whose hand is it? Is it? Um, hand against the throne of God, God's hand, or something else. One interpretation comes when, um, well, we find it in the fragment Targum, which is a later translation in Aramaic of the Bible, um, later than Jesus, but it contains, you know, popular interpretations. It's a bit like uh, sermons, if you could record them into the text. So it's not a straight word-for-word -word translation. It is augmented with midrash and interpretation. And so um, I gave a rough translation here. They're basically saying that an oath is going out from under the seat of honor of the ruler of the universe. So they're interpreting that yad, that hand, to be a hand raised an oath on God's throne. And of course, since God doesn't really have an actual hand, they're just saying an oath is going out from under the seat. And what is this oath saying? It's saying that there is coming a king in the future who will arise from the house of Israel, Saul, son of Kish. He will wage war with those of the house of Amalek and will kill off kings and rulers from them. And whatever is left over from them, Mordechai and Esther will defeat in Shushan, the capital. So... They've already made those 
two connections. Um, another way to interpret the Yad would be the king itself, that the hand is the future king. Because it says, when there is a hand on the throne of God, that's one way of understanding it, um, God will have war against Amalek. So not now, but when there is a hand on the throne of God. So when Saul sits on the throne as Israel's first king, what is his first command? Go out and fight Amalek and destroy them. So you see this interpretation of when there's a king, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a war with Amalek. So that wasn't the only interpretation of that line, of course. And to me particularly, this interpretation I'm about to say is very key to Esther. And it comes from, well, it's recorded in the Greek translation to this verse, which was done around, you know, 250 BC. Okay, so before <coughs> And they're trying to translate the Hebrew into Greek. And as they're translating, instead of saying a hand on the throne of God, they do something interesting. They have with a hand. So what have they done? They said, instead of saying Al Yad, sorry, instead of saying Yad Al, they have either seen a manuscript or switched it in their mind, Al Yad, by the hand. Instead of a hand on, it's on the hand, but that's an idiom for by the hand. And then they saw Kesia, the throne of God, which are um, abbreviated forms. Both of them are strange in the sense, well, Yah is an abbreviated God's name, but Kes is the only time it appears this way in the Bible. So it's strange anyway. And they saw those two as together to make the word Ksuya, which is covered or hidden. And that gives you, by a hidden hand, God has war against Amalek. And they have from generation to generation. They filled that in for us. So that means every generation, which is interesting because if it gets wiped out, how do you have one every generation? Right? We all ask that question, which leads us back to this idea that it's a spiritual heredity, hered heredity and not physical, that every generation you have to war against the spirit of Amalek, basically. So the other thing to, to point out from this original Amalek story that, that ties us back into Esther is what I'm going to call a, a standing sitting motif, which is part of the up-down motif. We, we obviously have his hands going up and down, but we also have interesting up and downs with standing and sitting. And here you can look at our story and you can also look at the story before, which is Exodus 17, 1 through what is it, one through seven, that talks about water from the rock at Chorev, the Tzul. And then you have Exodus 18, with it, which is Jethro coming to visit. And they both have little ways that their, their interpretation affects how you see the Amalek story. And so we have God saying that he's standing on the rock at Chorev. And then we have Moses saying, tomorrow I'll be standing on the top of the hill. But then when he's on top of the hill, he has to sit down on the rock. Um, why did I have Moses judging? Oh, and that lines up with the 
story afterwards where Moses sits to judge the people and the people, it says in Hebrew, are standing on him. And so I didn't highlight that for you right there. The people are also standing. Oh, oh, there it is. I did have it right next to it. I just can't read fast enough. And then in Jethro's advice, he says, you know, if you, you can't do this alone, you're going to wither. If you choose out people and set them up and delegate, then you'll be able to stand. And so you have a telling of a series of stories consciously using words that are standing and sitting and they're going back and forth and they're weaving the different understandings of those things. Even Moses sitting down, when you sit down, it can be a symbol of a strong king, you know, or it can be, he's too tired to stand up. Why does he sit down? You know? So, and it can be both. There's these little, ironies in the metaphor. The power of a metaphor is that it can be more than one understanding at the same time. So there's this whole play, if you read these three stories back to back in Exodus, and I think that there is a similar play in the book of Esther. So let's go. So we also have some going back and forth between standing and bowing and falling down or being prostrate. In Esther 3, 5, when Haman saw that Mordechai was not bowing or paying homage, that's uh, the paying homage is prostrate on the ground, he was filled with rage. Okay, that's the first time. But now look at the second time. What's making up upset this time? Esther 5, 9. But when Haman saw Mordechai at the king's gate, and he did not rise, I mean stand up, nor tremble in his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordechai. So this is kind of funny because the first time he's enraged, he's not bowing down. Second time he's enraged, he's not standing up. You know, you just can't please this guy. And you have these clear, you know, up downs. Now we have another idiom that comes back, this fear falling on people. And it's actually not very common in the Bible. And it comes three times in Esther 8 through 9, 18. And so we're going to look at some of these. Um, Esther 8.17, throughout every province and throughout every city where the king's edict and his law arrived, the Jews experienced happiness and joy, banquets and holidays. Many of the resident peoples pretended to be Jews, or you could alternatively, they became Jews because the fear of the Jews had overcome them. That word overcome is fallen on them. Um, in Hebrew, ki nafal pahad ha-Yehudim alehim. So the fear of the Jews fell on them. Again, in chapter 9, two, the Jews assembled themselves in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to strike out. And I highlighted that because it's to send out a hand, which is, it's a typical bi biblical idiom. When you're about to do something with your hands, you, you send out your hand to do something. But it's significant here if you're thinking in light of the story with Amalek and this hand or hands, you could say God's hand, Moses' hand, Amalek's hand. And so here they're, they're sending out their hand against the people who are seeking their bad or their harm. And no one was able to stand before them for dread of them fell on all the people. So again, they're describing these events 
I think consciously with language using standing and falling, standing and falling, because it's beautiful and it keeps tying back to this up and down motif. So in the next verse, all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who performed the king's business were assisting. I highlighted that because menasim, they're kind of lifting up the Jews. Um, for the dread of Mordechai had fallen on them. Again, nafal pahad, the fear fell on them. And so you have these lifting up and fear falling down. The other place, the other of the few places this, this phrase comes in the Bible is in the Song of the Sea. If you remember in Exodus 15, right after the people have crossed through the Red Sea and Moses and Miriam sing this song. It's poetry. It's beautiful poetry. And in verse 16, it says, fear and dread will fall on them, talking about these nations, by the greatness of your arm, they will be still as stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people whom you, whom you have bought pass by or whom you have created. I wonder why they said bought. I guess because if you're buying someone out of slavery, it could be seen that way. But the word liknot in the Bible can also be creator, the creator of heaven and earth. So um, either way, God is the creator of Israel and he is the buyer back, you could say, of Israel. So here we have this fear falling on people because they see the hand of the Lord in action to save his people. And then in Psalm 105, which of course is um, a retelling of the history of Exodus in the Psalms, it says, Egypt was happy when they left for they were afraid of them. Nafal pahad, again, fear fell on them. And then you have this interesting occurrence in 1 Samuel eleven seven, 7, where um, Saul is just consolidating his call to be king. And he cuts up that oxen, if you remember, into 12 pieces, and he sends it out. And, and look at the end of the verse. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they went out as one army, literally as one man. Um, so here... Fear falls on them. The fear of the Lord falls on them. And I guess you could say also in, in the Exodus, it's the fear of the Lord that falls on the people because they see how the Lord is acting. So we have um, Exodus. We have Saul's war or the start of Saul's gathering troops. Uh, there's also a case in Job 13.11. You can look added on your own um, where the fear of falling is referring to God and how you can't deceive him like you can a regular person. You have to be more afraid of God. So in Esther, the fear falls because of the Jews, but then with the third mention, it's because Mordechai is getting promoted to second in command. And so that means now Mordechai is in control of the King's army. And so that kind of gives, makes people respect him. So in, in all these cases, there's this fear falling. Oh, and I was going to say, the other 
thing I, I left out on the falling, rising and falling motif, of course, you have the gallows, you know, that are exaggeratedly high. Um, and you have Zeresh. If you ever notice Zeresh, who is Haman's wife, her advice to Haman, once she finds out Mordechai is a Jew, she says, there's nothing you can do. If he's a Jew, you've started to fall before him. And so there's again like these fallings. And then ironically, falling before Mordechai ends in him being exalted on a gallows um, that are exaggeratedly high. But that kind of exalting is a major defeat as opposed to Mordechai's exalting, um, not physically, but in, in stature. One other thing. Okay, so now I'll go to the other obvious um, takeaways from this scroll, I would say are what we call peripety, another type of irony, where it's an exact reversal. What was intended or what was you could say dramatic irony. Some of the people in the scroll were thinking this and then it got flipped. And so you have the mourning of the Jews talked about and the exact reversal is the happiness of the Jews. And you can look at these two side by side. This particular um, thing I got from Jonathan Grossman who has written a nice little book on Esther and he calls Megillat Hastarim. It has a, it's also in English. I forget the exact title, but it's something about the hidden, hmm, the hidden something in Esther. But if you look at Jonathan Grossman, you might be able to find it. It's a nice book because he goes through the scroll of Esther and he shows all these background stories and influences. Um, ironically, he doesn't show all the things about Amalek that I've seen, but he does a very good job of showing many and broadly, um, including um, Ahav, King Ahab, and the whole connection with Saul and many fascinating things. So here we have in every nation, contrasted to in every nation and city, the place where the word of the king and his decree arrived, the place where the word of, his, word of the king and his decree arrived, a great mourning for the Jews and fasting and crying and wailing. So in the reverse in chapter eight, happiness and rejoicing for the Jews, feasts and holidays and sackcloth and ashes were spread out for many. And that's reversed too. And many of the peoples of the earth became Jewish. Um, so I guess that's a rejoicing thing. <laughs> so in conclusion, what I think we see in the book of Esther is that the hidden hand of God is at work behind the scenes. And the author of the book of Esther cannot mention God, I think, because he or she understands it to be the same way as the Greeks understood it when they translated by a hidden hand of God, there is war against Amalek. So if this hand is we can't mention it. We're going to show it. We're going to show you the events. And it's so crazy and ridiculous. You're going to be forced to realize that God's behind it because nothing could account for this type of irony happening, you know, where Haman just happens to come in when the king can't sleep and he just happens to read about Mordechai and 
all these all these series of um, coincidences. And then, of course, when you look at the language of the scroll and these motifs, even in the language itself, it seems to be hinting to this first story of Amalek, where you have ups and downs, you have fallings and risings, and both in in idioms and also in pictures of what the characters are doing. And then, of course, you have the biggest irony of all, that a foreign woman takes out this Persian king and basically reverses his edict when the whole point of this whole story was supposed to be to maintain, you know, male authority and particularly the, the king's word that can never be repealed. And, you know, this great powerful word and it's turned on its head by a woman who's a foreigner and an orphan. So, so irony of ironies. I guess I didn't give you after all very, very many times to comment, but <laughs> feel free to jump in if there's anything you want to go back to or want to point out on your own, ask or point out. All right, well, first of all, Sharon, thank you very much for an excellent, uh, 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 incredible, so a lot of packed information there. Um, I've got a whole page of notes and I've heard you give this talk three to four times before. All right. um, so, guys, we can take it over to the community, um, comment, ask a question, however you want. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Sharon. Shalom to you. Thanks for this um, expose. It's a really great one. Um, I, I've learned a lot of new stuff and I'm very excited about it. Um, just want to put a, a question. Um, does it really mean, because I've read from some other sources, that the story of Purim didn't really occur? It's just some. Um, some kind of storytelling to talk about some 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 lifestyle of the Hebrew people, just like you put in the first um, sentence that um, they tried to kill us, we we survived and let's eat. So it's just to tell about this same pattern of life in the um, Jewish life cycle. So it's not that it really happened. Um, have you heard something like that, or and, and what's your stand on it? Well, I'm sure I've, I've heard all kinds of things. Um, basically, what what that stance is saying is is the question of historicity as opposed to dramatic presentation. I mean, there's two yes. ways to take it. You can obviously it's it's written in such a way that could be dramatized, or even a puppet show would be great. That doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. It can still happen. It's how the author chooses to present it. And so that's, that's how I would take it. Where you can have the historical events, and that's fine and nice, but it's how you choose to portray them. Um, and that's where you get into the whole artistry of it and, and drawing out some of these um, connections that so clearly go back to other stories in the Bible as well. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And again, well, of course, looking at the connection, so amazing, you know, connecting back to Saul, and now all from what you've shown us, connecting back to um, where uh, Moses met with the Amalek in, 
in the battlefront and um, the standing and the sitting and all those, you know, it's kind of making a lot of sense to me right now. Um, also, on the, the parts of the, I'm pointing on the particular issue right now, the part where the king gave this order, accessories gave this order for the queen to appear. Um, a lot of majors say that he um, gave the queen the, the order to appear with only the crown. In other words, she was supposed to appear in a, in a very, um, she was to appear nude before the, yeah. the people. And um, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's a very far-fetched one, but um, what's your stand on that too? Yeah. So that, that is what I, and it's reading the fine detail. The time. Oh, we asked her to appear before him in a crown, but it doesn't mention anything else. Yeah. So it must be she was naked. However, I think the spirit of that Midrash is more or less true because not that she has to show up naked, but just the fact that she's showing up to a drinking party for men puts her in the category of prostitute. And so she might as well be naked. And he is trying to show off her beauty. So yeah. it's, um, either way, it's not, it's from her perspective, it's not a becoming uh, request. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yep. So in line with what uh, our brother Shimshon uh, is saying, um, the, this, 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 the majority of Jewish people in Israel, in Israel probably around the world, will, will, will say that this is a true event. There are the progressives and things, and I've read some articles that always appear every year, that describe this as, a not, as something that's a late invention, sort of middle ages sort of a, a idea. We do have to acknowledge, of course, it's not mentioned in the New Testament. Why do you think that is? Um, well, not everything is mentioned in the New Testament. <laughs> Very so, true. Yep. That's the answer you give me every time we have this discussion. But anyway, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's also not in Qumran. Ah, very good, Gary. This is, by the way, is uh, the husband, okay? Just letting you know. Okay. <laughs> also a good scholar. Is it, is it not in Qumran at all? Yeah. Okay. Mm. And Martin Luther didn't like the book. Oh, him. really? That's a surprise. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah. Did he like anything at all, apart from beer? <laughs> I think There's he a lot of <laughs> like Christmas trees and, and hymns, right? He was a big hymn fan. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so it's not a Qumran and it's not in the New Testament. So um, that's an interesting idea of like, you know, uh, fringe, fringe movements don't, don't seem to embrace this text or very, this story very much or use it in their, in their um, presentation of Messiah. So that's interesting. All right. Well, in, in the end, I because the Bible, it never the books don't claim what genre they are. They don't say, "Oh, by the way, I'm history," or "Hey, I'm I'm Psalms, I'm poetry over here." We have to understand based on the content. For instance, the Book of Proverbs, Book of the Proverbs is full of proverbs, and you could take any one proverb and say, "Oh, that that's not true because there was a case that this didn't happen." But the book is true because it's saying, in general, it's giving a proverbial statement, which is not meant to be 100% watertight. It's meant to give you wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so 
I would say it is true of the Bible that there are cases where it's not clear if a book is written as an inspired drama or as, as dramatized history. And I think in either case, God can speak truth in either way. If he chose to inspire a drama, so be it. And if he chose to inspire someone's retelling of history in such a way that it, it brings beautiful drama to it, that's great too. So in the end, it, it doesn't make or break anything ultimately. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing might be the New Testament's maybe lack of mentioning it might be because of, you know, the son of David versus the son of Saul that Esther has this focus on Benjamin and Saul. Oh, There's no yeah. mention of David. Um, Esther's all about redeeming in messianic Saul. Terms. And yeah. if you like that theme, you can read uh, Jonathan Grossman's book. He, he goes into that quite a bit. Right. Of course. I mean, New Testament, Jesus has very little to say about the Maccabees, the, the, the previous rules before the Romans. Like, there's very little comment on what just occurred a generation previous. Yeah, there's a, there's a, that's kind of empty. That's true. Yeah, it's, uh, I wanted to thank you so much. Uh, very interesting, the theme of up and down and, and the fear, the sphere falling. And we'll definitely look into that. So thank you so much for that. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I had just, as I reading through Esther, some of the subtle um, stories embedded in, and, uh, in, in this Megillah, um, so like Adam and Eve, for example, they could have eaten from every fruit in the garden except one. So there was a forbidden etz, a forbidden tree. And the king's servants uh, in Esther chapter three, they literally badgered um, Mordecai, you know, every day. And um, so, so the king, he, he had it all in, in, in uh, Esther chapter five. He, he, he goes to he, the banquet and he's all excited and he says, yet all of this is worth nothing to me. So he has everything uh, in, in the sense, everything except Mordecai and Mordecai <laughs> prepare for him and Etz prepares a tree. So as if Mordecai is the forbidden fruit that Haman cannot, uh, cannot have. And uh, so he was, you know, kind of this idea of putting him on on, on nets, and then the badgering, uh, you know, the yom v'yom every day, badgering uh, the servants, badgering Mordecai about, the, uh, you know, uh, every day of of, of him fall, you know, of him, uh, you know, bowing to the king, and then you have um, Joseph, Potiphar's wife, is badgering him to the yom v'yom, and then. Uh, in a sense, Potiphar's wife is the only thing that Joseph can't have. So that's also the forbidden. Yeah. And uh, he doesn't give into that. So very interesting how these stories all have many connections. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of connections to Joseph's story. You know, you have the foreign um, orphan who's a slave, mm -hmm. and rises in rank to second in command over the country. Although that in Esther, you have a strange dynamic where you have Esther and Mordecai kind of like um, a split character because at the end, it's not Esther who's put second in command, it's Mordecai. Um, 
but yeah, they're kind of viewed as a composite, you could say, two halves of the same character. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's true. Sharon, what I found so fascinating, which I had not thought of, is your whole premise from the beginning that the king, the whole thing is that the, 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 the law of the Medes and Persians, it can never be broken. And, and the whole thing, the, the king's rule has to, has, has to be the last word and so on. And then every time you, it gets switched. Yeah. And I'd never seen it. And I'd never seen it that finally... The, the, this 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 orphan foreign queen who's come through the system of 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 of, of his of his harem basically wins the day. I mean, it's 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 absolutely extraordinary. It, it is. It really is extraordinary. And it should be funny. I mean, I think I think, I think it's great. When you read the the scroll, you just have to laugh sometimes. I have a, a question on halakha. Um, fasting is the only form of halakha that's actually mentioned in the text. Um, why is there a complete absence of any other halakha? Like the apart, I mean, they're even told to hide their Jewishness. You know, but which, she was Esther was taught in the customs of her people. Doesn't okay, all right, good point. So we don't know exactly what the halakha was there, but she knew okay. she was Jewish and she knew that that meant something. Thing. Okay. Yeah. It, it leaves a lot to be uh, asked. Like what, when she went into the king's palace, presumably if she's hiding her identity, she's eating unkosher food. Right. She's yeah. eating meat that has just been prepared yeah. the way to She's not practicing Shabbat. She's, you know, there's a, a bunch of things that would, might be there, possibly be there. Possibly, yeah. Something she may have been able to do on her own, but like eating whatever food or drinking the wine, you know. Right. Just either she does it or she doesn't. And if she does it, it's not going to be considered kosher. Right. Um, the, the other interesting dynamic is um, the whole dynamic between Jews in Persia at the time and then Jews in Jerusalem. Because if you remember, if you look at it on the historical background, the Jews have already been permission, given permission to go home and build the temple. So what are they still doing in exile, you know? Yeah. So you have this diaspora community as opposed to Jerusalem or Israel community. Okay. And that's very fascinating as well. Hmm. And so you could say, you know, there's this distrust between the two communities. You know, what are you still doing there? We, we have it all here now. You can get kosher meat back at home now. You can come to the temple. Why are you there? Yeah. You know? They've got the cucumbers and the leeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or is it for such a time? No it's no different today. We've got a state. We've got a Jewish state. What are you still doing sitting in, in New York or whatever? Mm -hmm. so, come home, friends. What? The difference is they had a temple as well. Right. One right. thing. Yeah. One thing I don't know um, is that when uh, in Persian historiography, it was a no-no to mention God or the divine or sort of religion. So when you wrote history, when the Persians wrote history, and they were quite good at it, uh, you never mention uh, heaven or the gods, unlike the Greeks or even the Hebrews. Uh, history had to be secular. Which makes a lot of which the Book of Esther probably reflects that kind of historiography. Yeah, 
Cool. Okay. And um, also one um, very interesting thing um, that uh, I kind of noticed also is um, when you look at um, the reason for of um, um, that um, Heman gave to the trying to annihilate the Jews, um, they're very very flimsy reasons. Um, first one, it says that um, these people are scattered all over your province. I mean, everyone is scattered over the province. And the second reason is that they, they, they have a different custom. I mean, the Indians have a different custom than the Ethiopians. I mean, everyone under the province had different um, custom. And he gave these reasons. And, um, you know, that's why we all look at um, the king, um, Azeros, as really the, 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 the boy king that doesn't really think for himself. Then also, but the, fi the final reason, which seems to be a, a more good reason, um, is that, um, yes, they, they don't obey the king's order. If people don't obey the king's order, then yes, then the king can. So why did they give these other two reasons that doesn't really make any sense? Because every other person will fall into this category. Every other people group will fall into this category. But it, it kind of highlighted these other reasons. Yeah, I think it it highlights the fact that the king isn't very right. He's he's content with getting a reason that isn't a reason. He doesn't challenge it. Oh, you know, you want to do that? Well, okay. And of course, Haman is purposefully vague. And so is Esther in her request. She's purposefully vague. Um, the other thing, though, it could be Mordechai. You know, he's referred to in the scroll as Mordechai HaYehudi. Mordecai the Jew. Yeah. And if people knew that about him, and if the king liked Mordechai, it could be that if Haman first came and said, hey, let's get rid of all the Jews, I don't like them, the king would have maybe said, oh, wait, but I like Mordecai and he's a Jew. I don't know. And so you have to be then deliberately vague in the beginning. Um, yeah. In the same way as, you know, against Daniel, you, you try to come in the back door. Oh, he... He still prays. He doesn't bow down. We can catch him there. Okay. Yeah, because um, yeah, I don't know of any other instance. Certainly, Haman doesn't give a reason um, yeah. for not obeying the king and his orders, unless this is a hint back to Aaron's issue of um, what does it mean to be a Jew at the time? Um, if you have separate laws for eating, for instance, or not visiting with people, you know, if, if some of that could have been felt by other people at but still, it's not insubordination to the government. It's just more of a social. Yeah, yeah. Social. Then also to notice the, of course, the wild party by the king, um, 180 days, that's a six months party. It's, um, you, you feel this a bit exaggerated. Um, so it, maybe it's not, but um, you see that the, the passions are used to wild parties. They're used to having parties. If you go to Daniel, yes. Um, you see that it's also the party that brought the problem for um, Nebuchadnezzar's son that came yeah. to truth. You know, <laughs> they always have party. And um, well, it's, to, be, to be culturally relevant, you have to start with a base culture and then exaggerate. I mean, we know Persians also, they showed off by their um, glasses or drinking utensils. They would have, you know, gold and silver and all these fancy um glasses in the same way that maybe in other parts of the world they buy fancy cars that's the way they show their status so persians they were very into drinking very into their drinking utensils and so this would be definitely a way to to show off 
Also exaggerated in the scroll, you see the gallows, how high they are. Um, if you compute it, I think it's something like 75 feet, depending how you use um, the conversion rate, but you don't need 75 feet to hang someone. <laughs> to hang someone, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yes. And the wow. Persians also, the way they hung people was not by a noose hanging, um, but they skewered them. They stuck them in a pole and put them up like that, oh, which is particularly good. nasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe they hire the person and so the more the people can see, um, maybe something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, and it's become more humiliating to the, to the deceased or whoever that is um, in the wrong side. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I mean, they, 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 uh, there's so much mystery in the in the in the story of Esther, and um, of course, at the end of the day, we see that um, it became a law that um, Mordecai and Esther wrote to the Jews. It's not, of course, it's not part of the Moadim of um, yeah from the beginning, and but now it is instituted by this, and um, the elders accepted it. Um, but in some circles, it's still a problem. And people say, no, it's not part of the Moadim. We don't need to celebrate it. Um, what do you say about that also? Yeah, well, you see some of that in the text. Um, Jonathan Grossman has a nice section on that, um, dealing with, again, the communities in Shushan, in Persia, as opposed to communities elsewhere, including Israel. And how, you know, the one, they, first they have this spontaneous celebration, which is the day of their delivery, um, which is different by a day. So it's the 14th for some, it's the 15th for the ones in Shushan. And then they try to say, okay, we're going to celebrate both days for everyone. Um, but there seemed to be, if you read between the lines, there seemed to be some pushback on that. And they didn't quite want to do that. But in the end, that's Mordechai sent a second letter and then Esther added her stamp of approval on the letter, and then it was accepted. But then in later halakha, they go back on it. You're not supposed <laughs> to celebrate two days everywhere. You just celebrate according to the type of city you're in. So if you were in a, a city with walls in, in Joshua's time, you celebrate on the 15th. And if you were without walls, you celebrate on the 14th. Um, yeah, so there, there was some tension about celebrating from the very beginning. But it, I haven't got the Hebrew in front of me, but is in, in the last chapter in verse 27, it talks about it being an appointed time. Is that a Moedim? So is that the... Moed would be appointed time. Where are you reading? I'm in Esther, the last chapter. What's that? 10, 27. But So if it's a Moedim, it does become very much more fixed within, the, certainly in our life cycle here now. Yeah. Well, it talks about remembering and kept in every generation. So they continue to do that, huh? Yeah, sure. <laughs> My question is how, I know you had talked about this, Sharon, at the beginning, but how did it get, of course, you know, Nehemiah, you do the, you know, the buzzards so they don't hear the noise and the booing and all that. How did it evolve to that? Like, how did, this is the, this is where you can get, I mean, with the drunkenness, right? So, <laughs> like you're in a sense, you're identifying with, uh, you know, the bab, whatever this, this, the whole Persian 
drinking? I mean, I'm just wondering how that morphed into what it is today. So, so I think that it starts with understanding that there's so much irony, there's so much burlesque, where you have really serious being really flippant, and that that so easily lends itself to drama and carnival. And, um, you know, in, in the book itself, there's all these feasts. There's 10 feasts, if you want to count them all. Mm. And, um, you know, there's some fasting too, you know, fast to feast. Like tonight, you should be fasting. And then tomorrow night, the feasting starts. Um, right. Concept of upside down, turning things on their head and things aren't as what they appear to be. Um, the behind the scenes, then you have a mask, you know, you have that idea. And then opposites, like you, you drink until you can't tell the difference between Mordechai and Haman. Um, mm. Just, I guess it's basically the principle of turning things on their head and things being opposite and ironic reversals kind of leads down. You can exaggerate down that path as well and end up with... But, but you know, it's also... Jews were influenced by uh, carnival, Mardi Gras, uh, yeah. and it's it's a Jewish form of uh, it's a Jewish form of Mardi Gras, basically, or carnival, yeah. which they they uh, you know observed in Europe. It's their it's their Jewish version of, of like, that kind of uh, revelry. Like yeah, they, like they Haman, the, Haman's the, ear. I'm sorry. I was just going to say here in Brazil, yeah, it's, 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 well, of course with COVID, no carnival, but it's carnival, like, you know, before Lent and then. <laughs> I, I can't say carnival in, in Brazil. It is really serious people. It was last week. So, I mean, there was some illegal carnival parties, you know, <laughs> but not the official with the floats and the sambodromo and everything going down. But you notice the principle is the same, right? The principle is you, we need to celebrate. And then, you know, religious authorities or social customs, they give people to use the proverbial inch and uh, folks then take a mile, right? Uh, you know, yeah. you get a little tipsy. And in Israel, it actually can get quite ugly if you walk down Jaffa Street, Jaffa Road uh, on a normal you know, forum evening, uh, the number of people who, who are drunk. And, and, and in all fairness, a lot of rabbis and religious leaders are against this, but this is, this is some, some kind of social convention that uh, either allows or encourages people to kind of, you know, cut loose and to, and to be wild, just as Carnival did uh, or does, still does in many countries. Like the day I, I, I don't know if you agree, Sharon, but it, I've always thought that the Gentile world really took the ideas from the Jews. We had, we've had Purim, and it became somehow the beginning of Carnival, which is to do with the beginning of Lent, which is whatever, and it comes roughly at the same time. And in the same way, Passover somehow gets morphed into Easter. I mean, it's it starts with the Jews, and then it becomes something different. I mean, Carnival. If I don't you know think, if you want to claim Carnival, Gemma. But um, I said I don't know if you want to claim Carnival as a, as a Jewish. Um, you don't but to, I think actually, carnival. if you look at the feasts in the Bible, you see um, a cyclical and um, a timeline. Right. So. 
you have an agricultural year. All the feasts line up with certain agricultural things. Right. And yet they're connected to something that happened one time in Israel's history. So right. this beautiful convergence of the, the circle, the cycle that keeps going, and the straight line of history. And so I think on the circle level, um, agriculture is shared by all cultures. And there's always going to be things that commemorate um, the beginning of spring, for instance, or um, the darkest day in the year, or things of this nature. Um, and so that, I mean, you could see as like general cultural trends, and maybe you could add to that list a need as a culture to have a day where everyone just goes crazy and breaks all the rules. Um, that would be the carnival, like my kids. <laughs> they think that's every day. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> but we have to do the non-Purim thing. Every day is not Purim. Exactly. All right. Well, David, did you want to say any final words uh, as the rector of Christchurch, or shall I wrap it up? Oh, sorry. I'd like to ask Sharon one quick question. Okay. What did you say about, and this is huge, but uh, in one of the few places in the Bible, you, read, you did a, a physical description of, uh, of a person, Esther. She's attractive. And it mm -hmm. even mentions her figure. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> what does this say about, does this say about uh, women and the way women are described? Is this kind of a, something a bit odd or different? Or you want to make a few comment, a comment or two about that? Uh, well, yeah. In biblical stories, they don't use a lot of words for descriptions. And they only tell you what's going to be relevant to the story. And so when a mention is made of someone being good looking, it's not just so that you know that, it's because it's gonna be relevant to the story. And often cases it's a woman, but there are also cases like Joseph, he's also good looking. Um, Daniel is good looking. Um, so Saul, Saul is good looking. So, and David. And David. So there are cases of men as well. Um, let me see. I think for Joseph, it also mentions his body or it gives a, there's a double description. You could be descriptive. You're good looking and nice to look at, um, where you could interpret one to be the face and one to be the body, depending how you do that. Um, obviously women in the Bible, you know, there's a lot of women who are no names. Um, that's not so cool, but there are, there are also men who are no names. Um, the Bible likes to kind of tell stories kind of simplify in a certain way. It's very deep, but it uses a simplified storytelling form. And you have, you know, oftentimes a dialogue between two characters. And if you're not one of those characters, you may not get a name. Um, it's, it's a later thing to name every single character you have. That's um, so true because I'm thinking of Absalom, you know, he was so beautiful in his hair. And then he was actually, it's the, you know, midah, connected midah, the measure for measure, because it yeah. was through his beauty and the hair that he got stuck in the ets and became. The, the nice thing with Esther is she does get into her position based on her good looks, but she brings about salvation based on her smarts. Obviously God using her smarts. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, it's a both. Cool. Okay. Um, interesting to note that, um, Esther, first of all, turned down the 
um, the appeal to, to, to act on behalf of the Jewish people um, until Mordecai asked to send a stinger to her that uh, don't you don't think you will escape, you know, you know, over there because you're in the king's palace, that when this terror comes, it's going to get to you. And we see her finally turning into it. But um, the way she went about it, it's um, very strange, you know, I mean, if uh, I mean, if we don't know the story and you are told that, okay, um, you're brought before the king and says, okay, what is your desire or what do you need? I mean, you are facing annihilation. The first thing you want to say, okay, there is one guy trying to kill us. Please just stop him from killing us. If she doesn't just rush into it and um, she makes this appeal, oh, come for a feast. And even the second time, come for a feast. I mean, it's so strange and... Um, um, and the end of the day, it worked out for her. It, it's not that she knew that um, how the outcome at the end was going to be, um, but you know, it's very strange that she didn't just walk in that kind of wisdom. That we, we yeah, she walks in wisdom, but it's like his as if the divine orchestration is behind the whole scene and helping her to get what she wanted. Because our moves were very strange. <laughs> It's strange, but I think there is wisdom there because she knew, she knew the king and the type of person he was and that he didn't really care about issues. All he cares about, remember, is wine, women, and wealth. And so she had to come up with a situation that the king would get angry about something he cares about. And so she manipulates a, a situation where Haman would look like he's competing for her. And then the king gets angry yeah. and then he wants to kick him yeah. up. So she is actually on a very deep level. She's trying to think about who she's dealing with, the king and Haman. Haman wants more power. So he's going to love getting a special invite to this feast. So she's playing their weaknesses against each other to, yeah. to achieve the results. And yeah, maybe it's a bit of a risk, but maybe it shows how much she actually knows them. And, um, and she succeeds. And then, of course, there's the grace of God that helps her succeed. And she hadn't been called for by the king. So that's, you know, pretty amazing also. Yeah. And talking of the loss of the Medes and the Passion, um, that cannot be changed. I, I, think, I don't think that law was changed. I think what um, King Hazarus did was to let the two laws to act. Yeah, yeah, the two laws were right. there, out there. Yeah, literally, the law wasn't changed, but the spirit of the law was changed, and so that's the main thing. the The end goal was flipped, or the end, uh, not the goal, the end result was flipped. All right, David, any final words, or shall I wrap up? Words. I just would like to um, thank Sharon for uh, enabling us to carry on this very long. Um, distinguished tradition of having her speak. It's always nice to uh, hear from her. And like you said at the beginning, Aaron, always learn uh, something new yep. uh, or remember something that uh, has been forgotten. And um, I just would like to remind folks that Purim is a time uh, in which uh, we remember the poor. And uh, if anyone is so moved, uh, we would be very grateful if, if folks would contribute even small amounts to the Christchurch Mercy Fund. Yes, we 
uh, it, we're not a very big ministry here, but we're quite, uh, I think, a, a very active presence uh, helping uh, the poor in Jerusalem and throughout the country uh, from all different communities. And of course, as you can imagine, uh, the need here is, uh, is, is very, very great. So in the spirit of Purim, before you all go off and get drunk or, or start to <laughs> or, or do whatever you want to do, you know, being a preacher, we don't want to know those things. Uh, but we, we would uh, appreciate uh, any contribution now or at a later time to the Christchurch Mercy Fund. Okay, so thank you very much. And good evening. Thank you, Sharon. We'll thank you very much, Sharon. We all learned a lot. We would, would definitely like to hear your wisdom bequeathed to us on other subjects. Thank you. Thank Incredible. You. Thank you. All right. Blessings to you all and hug some air. Thank you. Thank you.